Well, greetings, Church of Jesus Christ. Boy, am I excited about the news Mark just shared with us that we're going to get to regather again. And I'm looking forward to it, even, even with the additional restrictions that we'll have to endure for a little while. It's exciting that we'll get to see each other live and in person again here soon. Let me open us up with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Father, for the life that you give us. Um, Father, I pray this morning as we open up your word, Father, that we would uh, just be captivated by the incredible uh, gift that you give us, Lord, the gift of life. Father, that we would understand a little more, a little more deeply, a little more, have a little clearer vision of what that means, Father, that it would uh, realign our hearts towards you. And Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have given us and offered to us life. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in our series so far, Mark has been taking us through the book of Romans. And there has been uh, a consistent theme throughout the book of Romans, and it's really highlighted by that verse that was just on your screen. This, there's been a theme of life and death that has come up in every chapter of the book of Romans so far, and it's highlighted by that verse 21 of chapter 5 where Paul says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is an incredible richness and a beauty there, especially in these chapters of 5, 6, 7, 8, as Mark's going to get into chapter 6 next week, and the richness and the depth there. But it revolves around this idea contained in this verse of what it means to be dead and what it is that Christ is offering us in eternal life. And I think because all of us have a confusion over that, we uh, there's a deception that we all live under. The whole world lives under this deception of what it genuinely, truly means to be alive. And because of that confusion, because of that deception, we're blinded to the richness of what it is that Christ offers us. And so this week, we're going to step back a little bit and try to understand what God has revealed about life and death so we're asking and we seek to answer today the, the ultimate question, the question uh, of life, the universe, and everything in it. Now there are a few of you out there who just shouted at your screen, 42. Now the rest of you are asking, why in the world would anybody right now be shouting at their screen, 42? Well, there's a book out there, it's a comedy, it's a science fiction comedy, and in this book, it's called the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In this book, there's this people group who are wrestling over this ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything in it. And they decide to build this supercomputer and, and dedicate this supercomputer to the task of discovering that answer. And the computer, after it's done being built, says, I can do it. It's going to take me seven and a half million years. Come back in seven and a half million years and I'll give you the answer. And so these people wait patiently seven and a half million years and they finally gather at that moment and, and wait for this computer to reveal the answer and the answer the computer reveals is 42. And as the people are all confused and 
looking at each other, wondering, Why, what does that mean? What do you mean 42? The computer then explains to them that they don't even really understand the question that's being asked, and what they really need to know is the question, the right question to ask. Um, and that's a comedy, but there's some interesting truth in that. We as humans don't know the right question to ask. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be dead? And so I went to Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Here's what Merriam-Webster says about what it means to be alive. Well, the meaning, uh, what it means to be alive is having life, not dead or inanimate. Okay, so now we flip to what does is, what is Merriam-Webster say is the definition of dead? Well, dead is deprived of life, no longer alive. I don't know how much that helps. It just kind of points at each other. It's not having life. So maybe we flip to what is the definition of life? What does Merriam-Webster say life means? Well, here's the definition they offer. It is the quality that distinguishes a vital and functional being from a dead body. Well, when you really think about that definition, it kind of begs the question, because when I go to look at the definition of life, I'm, I'm wanting to know what is that quality that distinguishes from a, a living being from a dead being. So the, even the definition there is sort of circular. It doesn't give us uh, satisfaction and fulfillment. In, in the scientific fields of biology and others, you know, NASA formed a, a team of scientists to come together to define life for them. Because if they're going to find life on Mars, how will they know when they find it? What, it, what does life mean? What does it look like? What are the things that make up life? Um, and there's authors, one scientist uh, wrote a book and, and proposed a solution, the seven pillars of life. If anything that has these seven things, it is alive. Anything that doesn't is not alive. Here's how he introduced uh, this paper that he wrote. The, um, his name is Daniel Koshland. Let me read a section from his introduction. He says, what is the definition of life? I remember a conference of the scientific elite that sought to answer that question. Is an enzyme alive? Is a virus alive? Is a cell alive? After many hours of launching promising balloons that defined life in a sentence, followed by equally conclusive punctures of these balloons, a solution seemed at hand. The ability to reproduce. That is the essential characteristic of life, said one statesman of science. Everyone nodded in agreement that the essential of life was the ability to reproduce. Until one small voice was heard. Then one rabbit is dead. Two rabbits, a male and a female, are alive, but either one alone is dead. At that point, we all became convinced that although everyone knows what life is, there is no simple definition of life. You see, even in those pillars and the things we learn in biology, the, th the lists that make up the characteristics of life, no one has ever managed to compile a set of physical properties that unites all living things um, without excluding something we la label as inanimate. There are always exceptions. So in a very literal sense, we don't know the meaning of life. We don't even know what the word life means. We can't define it. Why is this? What is going on? It seems so basic to our human existence. Why do we as mankind struggle to define what life is? Well, I want us to look at Scripture and see there is a big lie. There is a deception 
that is in the world. There's a deception that every man, woman, and child is under that confuses the idea of life. And to look at this deception, we're going to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God says this in verse 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, it's an interesting question. Adam and Eve had never experienced death. What did it mean? What did they think that meant? But God had proposed to them a truth. In the day you eat of this, you will surely die. But then in Genesis 3, we read an alternative truth that is placed before them as the serpent comes into the garden. In verse 4 of chapter 3, the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, one of those things is true, and one of those things is a lie. The serpent convinces Adam and Eve that, the, that they will not die. Satan confuses whatever God's concept was of life and death. Satan brings a confusion into that, a deception onto Adam and Eve for that. And we as Christians, we'll, we'll go to Genesis 3 and we'll say, well, they spiritually died. And, and not that that's not true, but... When I hear that, for me, it feels a little bit like a moving of the goalposts some. Well, what does it mean to, then to spiritually die? You need to define that for me. What does that, what does that mean? What did God mean by that? And in what sense did Adam and Eve die? This is the, the question we want to look at today, this deception, this lie, and what does God say about its truth? And there's a, a few places in Scripture where it's addressed pretty directly, but none better than in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, God defines the meaning of true life, eternal life, in verse 3. Jesus, in his prayer, he says, and this is eternal life. Let me pause for a second there. He's, eternal doesn't mean it just lasts forever, but it's eternal in the fullest. It's, a, it's the fullness of life the, life, the completeness of the experience of life. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, this idea of knowing there, this word of knowing, isn't just an informational knowledge. It's not just something that I, uh, I know intellectually. This, this word to know here is an intimate, experiential knowledge that Jesus is proposing is the definition of the fullest of life. It is an intimacy. It is an experience of being in right relationship with God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, this is how God defines life. And it makes sense when we think about it because God is the author of life. He is the giver of life. And so to have the fullness of experience of life is to be in right relationship with our creator, being the way we were designed to be in relationship with the creator of the universe, with Jesus Christ whom he has sent. See, it's an intimate right relationship. Satan had confused that in the garden. His lie was... You don't need to find life in Jesus Christ. You can find life in this fruit. It can bring you pleasure. It can be good for food. It can bring you wisdom. You can find satisfaction in this thing outside of God. 
And that was the great lie that Satan brought into the world. That mankind fell under this deception of what does it mean to genuinely live, to truly find life. So let's go back to Genesis again in chapter 3. Verses 7 and 8. What immediately happens as soon as mankind eats of that fruit? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, the very first experience of mankind was now the relationship between the man and the woman was broken. They covered themselves from each other. The very first thing that happens is broken relationships between the man and the woman. It's no longer perfect in its fullness like it was in chapter 2. It now has something that's come between it and is, is broken in it. The very next thing that happens, verse 8, says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. With the very next thing that happens as God comes in, they used to experience this intimate fellowship with God. Now they are hiding from God. Their relationship, the intimacy, the fellowship that they had with God is now broken. According to John 17, 3, they are now no longer the fullness of life. They have died. They have experienced the beginnings of death as sin has entered the world. They are now dead. There is brokenness in their fellowship with each other and in their fellowship with God. And as we continue through the Bible, as we continue through Genesis, we see death grow and we see death manifest itself as the hatred and the animosity uh, grows and festers. We see Cain kill and murder Abel as he's angry is poured out and that that fellowship you can imagine even the experience of Adam and Eve they're experiencing death as they have one child kill another child and murder they're experiencing broken relationships broken fellowship and it goes on to Genesis 6 as mankind and evil spreads throughout the world and it says the world is filled with violence in Genesis 6 The world is filled with violence, verse 11. It's mankind against each other, rejecting God, rejecting each other. Hatred now becomes the characteristic. Spiritual death is now the hallmark of their physical life, and then ultimately their physical life is taken. Either through the brokenness of the world, through the brokenness of their relationships, physical death then is ultimately experienced. But make make no mistake, while they are physically alive, they are dead because they experience the brokenness of fellowship with each other, the brokenness of relationship with God. And they're believing the lie that they can pursue life on their own terms, believing the lie that they can uh, amass for themselves their own life their own joy, their own satisfaction, their own fulfillment by uh, seeking for it outside of God. And it brings more and more death. Now, we find out that death is the outworking, in Romans chapter 1, death is the outworking of God's wrath. This experience of death, God designed it to work like this. It's like gravity. In, in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, it says this, 
to those who by patience and in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now I want us to notice in verse 8, what does, what does Paul contrast? What does he say is the opposite of eternal life? He doesn't call it death in verse 8. Listen to what he calls it. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Notice For Paul, the opposite of eternal life is wrath and fury. Well, we found out in chapter 1 that that is the defining experience of mankind as God is giving them over in this wrath to the experience of death. See, it's like, it's like God's law of gravity that he wrote into the universe. The, it's like uh, the law that if I turn out the lights in a room, I'm going to be in darkness. God says, if when you seek for life outside of the giver of life, your experience will be death. It's a law of the universe. It is, it is tied to the very nature of God himself. It is the way life works. And as we see in, in Romans chapter 1, and, uh, and I want us to compare a little bit. What is this Romans chapter 1, this list of things that describe the wrath of God? Romans chapter 1 described it as evil, covetousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, boastful, ruthless. When we read that list, we should be hearing in our minds death. We see that as a manifestation of what Adam and Eve experienced, a manifestation of what all of their descendants experienced, this animosity towards one another, this brokenness in fellowship and relationship to one another and with God, this hatred. Now Paul is taking us on a journey through Romans, and he's going to describe for us, there's another list that we're going to get to later in the study of Romans in Romans chapter 12. And what should jump out to us about this list is it it feels like the exact opposite of the Romans 1 wrath list. In Romans 12, it lists out these things like genuine love, brotherly affection, honor, rejoicing, generosity, hospitality, blessings, harmony, humility, peace, serving. See, what is the journey Paul is taking us on is what does death look like? Well, it looks like the wrath of God being poured out. That is death. And its experience is broken fellowship, broken relationships between us and others and between us and God. And the restoration he's bringing us to, the salvation from that, looks like this place where Paul has taken us in Romans 12, where it looks like peace and harmony and gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control and these, these things that bring people restored relationships with God and with others. That is life. And it's found in intimacy with God because he is the giver of life. Now in Romans chapter 2 verse 5, we learn that God is withholding the fullness of his wrath. He says, but because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, God is God doesn't immediately give Adam and Eve over to the full experience of death. He restrains that wrath. They die and he, he controls the amount of death in hopes that, of repentance as we learn in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. He doesn't pour out the fullness of his wrath. He restrains it in kindness and mercy. They die but they don't experience the fullness of that death. 
They get to experience tastes of what life would look like through some good relationships, through some good fellowship with others. They experience what life should be like as God is letting them see what his character is like in hopes of repentance. And, and so in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, he says that in verse 4. And this has, when we think of death this way, it has interesting implications for Jesus on the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we did the memory verse earlier. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In what sense did Christ die? It's not simply that his heart stopped beating. It's not simply that his lungs were no longer filling with air and deflating. See, that's the way Satan wants us to think life is just that. No, Jesus experienced much more than that. He experienced the the fullness of sin and death. He experienced the fullness of hatred being poured out against him. God no longer restrained the wrath of his. And Christ fully is enveloped by the wrath of God there on the cross. How? Well, he's abandoned. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's scorned. He's forsaken. He's betrayed. He's hated. He's murdered. He experiences the fullness of death on the cross, ultimately in his physical death. And so Christ on the cross, we see what the fullness of wrath looks like. What every one of us deserves is the fullness of broken relationships with all others and with God himself, the wrath of God. But that brings us to then the gospel. Paul started off in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the good news, the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone believes. Salvation from what? Salvation from the wrath of God. Salvation from this death that we are all in. He, there is a deliverance for us from that that is offered because Jesus takes the fullness of that in his person on that cross He takes the full wrath that I deserve. And Jesus loves perfectly even through that, resulting in his resurrection, the perfection of what Jesus did. So in Romans 1, when he says, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, it's in that moment of faith that Christ gives you uh, his righteousness. And that word righteousness implies this right relationship. Our relationship can be restored to God through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. That moment of faith, Jesus gives us a right relationship with God and with himself. We see God for who he is because Jesus reveals him to us. And our relationship with God is restored we have now been made to live in the, in the sense of life the way God intended, being rightly related to God. And so in Romans 5 and now in the 6 and 7 and 8, we're going to see Paul emphasizing this idea of life because we d- died with Christ. He took the full wrath for us. Our separation was complete and he now gives us the life of Jesus Christ himself. I am in Christ. That's how intimate we are. Our life is now in Christ, the life we now live. And so our relationship with God has now been restored, redeemed. We've been reconciled with the living God. The author of life has given us life, and it's a free gift through faith that comes. 
And so as we think of that idea and we're, we're, we're captured by the love of Jesus Christ as he experienced the fullness of death, the fullness of this wrath of God in my place and he loves me perfectly through it, he does it in my stead while I'm his enemy. His love is perfect as he experiences the wrath of God. And he's asking me, he's calling me, he says the, in John 17 too, that he can give eternal life to all who believe, to the ones that God has given him. He gives this gift of eternal life. He restores us in right relationship with God. But as we also go into the rest of Romans, we're going to see that even us as Christians, until that day when we see Christ face to face and we know him fully and perfectly, our experience of life and our experience of death is, is still being worked out. Because wrath is like gravity. And Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, that we as believers, we can still live as if we're deceived. Romans chapter 6, verses 21 to 23 says this, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and have been, become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See here he's saying to us, as, even as believers, if you're an unbeliever out there, your experience of death, the broken relationships you have, the brokenness you see in the world around you, the, the broken fellowship that you experience is God's wrath. It is death that you are experiencing. And, and the fact that you're not experiencing death in every single relationship, in every form, is, is the kindness and mercy of God as he restrains his outpouring of his wrath. And he's calling you to turn away from the deception that you can achieve life for yourself and instead put faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. And if you've already believed that truth, then you have been placed in Christ. Your relationship is restored to God. But Paul is warning us. He says we can still believe the lie. We can still pursue after things in our life that we feel like will bring us joy, that we feel like will bring us satisfaction. And Paul's warning to us as believers is don't we know, don't we see that the end of those things is always going to be more death. And instead, to find our completeness in Christ, to know Christ more, to grow in our knowledge of him, to grow in our love for him, because that is where life, true, genuine, eternal life can be found. And by the way, God doesn't put a cap. There is no cap on the amount of life we can experience now. I mean, God is infinite. The life he offers is infinite. We can, can always grow more and more intimate with Christ. There's no cap on that. And he calls us to walk in that. In Romans 8, we're going to hear later uh, when Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. There is true life for us to experience now. And it is found in pursuing our knowledge, our intimacy, our fellowship with the creator of the universe, with the author of life. And so this is where we are as Christians if we're a believer. 
We, we seek to know Christ. We seek to grow in our understanding, our knowledge, our vision of who he is, of how completely our identity has been changed because in Christ we find life. We find the very power of the resurrection there in Christ. So how much are we believing the lie? Where do I look to find my life? For every one of us, I will say, the degree to which we struggle with sin is the degree to which we are deceived by Satan's lie about where life can be found. If I struggle with sin, it's because I'm believing a lie about what that sin can bring to me, what it can do for me, what fulfillment, what satisfaction, what joy that these sins can bring me. The lust of my eyes, I desire that for my pleasure. I desire that for my buildup. And God is warning us, he's telling us as Christians, it's like gravity. You pursue those things and you are pursuing the end of those things, which is death. I will only experience brokenness at the end of that road. Instead, pursue Christ. Pursue him, know him, grow in your fellowship with him. Let those desires turn toward, be fulfilled in Jesus Christ in what he has accomplished for us, what he has done for us. Where am I looking to find life? Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Here's the attitude that Paul is writing here. He says, For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying? He's saying, uh, Satan and the world and my flesh desire me to fix my eyes on the world around me and look to them. I want to exchange the truth of God for the lie that these things can bring me life. And Paul is saying, no, I count all of this as rubbish. I count all of these things as worthless because it's in knowing Christ that I experience the power of this resurrection. I experience life through the richness available through knowing Christ. And so our pursuit of life, our understanding of what does it mean in the ultimate sense to be alive it means to be an intimate and right relationship with the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And he offers that as a free gift. It's something that Jesus gives to us. And so as, Christian, as an unbeliever, God is crying out saying, come to me for life. I give it to you freely. Turn away from the things you're pursuing and look to me. I have paid the price for you. I give you life. And for us for, as believers, he's saying the same thing. It's the same message. Look to him for life. Look to grow in our knowledge of him to find fulfillment and satisfaction. Let him bring me joy and that peace because that will be found in Christ. 
So in conclusion, I, I think of the question and I think of my own life and I, and I wonder if, I, if somebody asked me the question, what does it mean to have eternal life? I would be able to answer and say it's to know Christ. It's to be in relationship with him. But it's one thing to say it and it's another one to believe it. And I wonder if, if, when, if my life were looked at, if your life were looked at under a microscope and, and everybody could know your every thought and motivation and, and see the things that you are living for, the things that you are seeking after, the things I'm seeking after, like I feel I, if I only had this, then my life would be complete. If I only had that, if I could, if I could get this, it will bring me pleasure. If I, the, the things I look to, I wonder if my life were under a microscope. What definition would somebody come to to say this is what Dennis McNutt believes about life? This is what he's living for. And the warning as Mark takes us into Romans 6 and the, and the development of this thought is that I can believe the lie as a Christian and I can seek after and pursue these other things and the end of those things, the wages of those things is more broken fellowship, broken relationships, broken intimacy with others, broken intimacy with God. And he's saying, no, you are in Christ. Your identity has been changed. You have been born again in a right relationship with the, the creator of the universe, the giver of life himself, and it is there that we find life. And I need to grow in my faith, my belief of the truth of this. And, and I need to, every time I find that deception in my life, I need to, to see it for what it is, see that deception, see that empty offering that, that I'm pursuing, and turn away from that and turn back to knowing that it is Christ who gives me life and it is found in him. And so every one of us can consider those things, see those things. How am I pursuing life? And if, if you're an unbeliever, I want to say it again, the 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 offer of life as a free gift to you can only be found in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's no other name by which life is given, the name of Jesus Christ. And so we look to him and know he's the one that brings me into this restored fellowship, restored relationship with the creator of the universe. And so we praise God and we look to him and we grow in our knowledge and fellowship with him. And I pray that during this quarantine time that you've had time to really focus on your relationship with Christ. What a unique time in world history that we can reconsider the things in our life that we are living for and refocus and reorient ourselves to finding true life in Christ. And that's my encouragement for all of us here today. Let me close us with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you truly are the giver of life. Father, I pray for all of us this morning, Lord, that uh, you would help us grow in our faith. Help us grow in our belief that you are the giver of life, that all other roads lead to death. Father, that I cannot achieve it. I cannot grasp it. I cannot reach for it, Father. I, I look to you because you are the giver of life. Father, help me to believe that more. 
Father, help us as a church to experience and be a a demonstration of the life of God in this world, uh, to be a light to the world around us, that they would know that you sent us because of our unity, because we experience life in this church. We experience genuine love and fellowship, generosity, hospitality. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.